Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Years ago, I prepared a paper that went as a kind of tract in New England. We used it at the Joseph Smith Memorial. I titled Joseph Smith Among the Prophets. It was written, I thought, uh, to the non-Mormon. And the attempt was to categorize some eight or ten characterizations of prophets that have been typical in Judeo-Christian literature. For example, that a prophet is a foreteller of some sort. He has access uh, prophetically to the future. Also, to use the jargon, prophets have been called forthtellers, meaning that they speak forth boldly in judgment and in recommendation of their own time. A prophet, too, is categorized as a man who has authority and speaks uh, with more than human sanction. He is a recoverer or a discoverer of truth. He is an advocate of social righteousness. He is a charismatic, which is a large word for one who, as a personality, seems to manifest something that attracts, particularly in a spiritual sense. He is one who endures suffering and radiantly. He is one who is embodiment of love. He is a seer, meaning that he has, again, the capacity to reveal, to clearly understand and reveal truth. And finally, among the great prophets of the past, many have been martyrs. Well, in that presentation, I simply showed that under each of those heads, Joseph Smith qualifies. If we use any of those to characterize a prophet, what can we say of a man who radiates them all? Today, more intimately now than the Judeo-Christian captions, we come to a kind of subjective approach to his glorious first vision. I would prefer to call it for reasons that will shortly appear, his first visitation. Now let me begin with a little intellectual bookwork. Nearly uh, nine years ago, we published a collection in BYU Studies of the four known accounts, written accounts, of the first vision. One first recorded in 1832, then again, 1835, after a visit he had with a Jewish visitor, Joshua, his name, a Jewish authority. And then in 1838, the statement which has been published to the world in the Pearl of Great Price. And then finally, the well-known Wentworth letter written in 1842 to the Chicago Democrat, in which again the prophet briefly recapitulates his first vision. Uh, what we intended by that publication was not only to give, as we did, the actual holographs, that is, the handwritten 
He had different scribes, but in each case, handwritten accounts as he dictated them. But also articles by some of our own best scholars as to the context of all this. Let me then dwell for a few moments on the background. In the earliest account, Joseph says that even in the days that he was in Vermont, Vermont where even today there is little pollution and where the sky at night is clear and the Milky Way is milky, he would look up at night and marvel at the symmetry and the beauty and the order of the heavens. And something in him said, as has happened to sensitive souls from the beginning, something lies behind that. There must be a majestic creator to account for that majestic creation. But the contrast between that boyhood awareness and the confusion he saw down on this planet was not only difficult, it seared his soul. And the divisions that he describes in Palmyra were not simply among and between others, neighbors and friends. They were in his own family. We have recently shown that he had a, at least one relative in every church in Palmyra. So that the family was utterly spread. Order in heaven, disorder on earth. How can God be responsible for both? But the record also makes it transparently obvious that it hadn't ever occurred to him when he went in the grove that all of the then influential churches were in error. Notice that the question he put when he recovered himself, the question he put was not, is there a true church in the world? The question he put was, which church is true? He assumed at least one had to be. The answer was all the more striking and stark, therefore. Join none of them. Another interesting point about the background is that he had been struck. In fact, he says, no passage of scripture ever came more strongly to a soul than mine. Struck by reading the Bible. We think we know that Reverend George Lane was the man who first recommended in Joseph Smith's hearing that one do that, and even that specific passage was mentioned in some of Reverend Lane's sermons. He was a Methodist, and he was associated with the revival of which I've spoken. We can't prove that he was this person. But Joseph later describes this uh, person who was, he says, identified with the aforementioned religious excitement. I can't imagine, and this to me is poignant, that at age 14, full as he was of the glory, the remarkable experience, and the excitement of it, going, 
And he says he did. He doesn't name George Lane. He says, I went to this man, told him what had happened. And you remember, his response was instantly, oh, no, that could not be of God. Those sort of things don't happen anymore. So to recommend that one lacking wisdom ought to go and pray, let him ask of God. Fair enough. But the answer seemed to this man too much. Heaven came too close. And it's almost as if, I repeat, the boy, pure-minded, spontaneous, even a little unrestrained, as teenagers are, should have been struck instantly in the moment of, wow, it worked. You told me to do this. I did it. And the response is, shucks, boy, it's all of the devil. And the smile slowly disappeared. And he learned early that to testify, even to hint, of divine manifestations was to stir up darkness and to call down wrath. And that continued until there were bullets. Now, I haven't done justice to the point of the family and their support for him. We have a document from a woman who herself was a Presbyterian who speaks of Joseph's early life when she, as a girl, much younger apparently, came and watched him with others of the boys working in her father's farm. The enemies of Joseph Smith have made out over and over that he was shiftless, lazy, indolent, never did a day's work in his life. The truth? Exactly the contrary. Nibley had pointed out in passing, by the way, that the stories radically contradict each other. On the one hand, we hear of this shiftless person who's always telling stories aimlessly and never doing a hard day's work. And in the next breath, the anti-Mormon tracts point out that every night at midnight he's out with his crew digging for silver or buried treasure or something and never finding it, which is hardly indolent. It's overactive. The truth is that, according to this account, a non-Mormon account, her father hired Joseph because he was such a good worker. Not only that, because he was able to get the other boys to work. The suspicion is that the way he did that was as a fairly deft use of his fists. I noticed that as a suspicion. I don't say that's the truth, but I personally believe from long study that one of the feelings he had of unworthiness. One of the things he was praying for forgiveness for. And he did pray for forgiveness prior to the coming of Moroni. Was this physical propensity, he was so strong and so able, so muscular, that that was one way he had of solving problems. And he did not feel that was consonant with one who as he had been, had received a divine commission. Well, this girl says that on an occasion, the minister came to her home and said that the boy Joseph, well-known, 
in the community, had claimed to have a vision. And this minister pled with the man who had hired Joseph to refuse to hire him and treat him rough because he said he was setting the neighborhood in an uproar. The father replied, no, he earns his money, he's a good worker, and I don't care about whatever he claims religiously. As a matter of fact, the phrase is interesting he uses. He says, well, he doesn't use the word vision, he says, well, it was the sweet dream of a pure-minded boy. That's before. But then shortly, the daughter reports, Joseph claimed to have had another vision, this time leading to the translation of a book. And the minister came again, and at this point, he turned against Joseph. But she adds significantly, by then, it was too late. Joseph Smith had a following. Well, the family did support and love. There is no greater example of total familial endurance in history than the Smith family. And though they had, of course, their ups and downs, and though William Smith is almost as insecure and unsteady as Hiram Smith was loyal and unyielding in his faith, Nevertheless, overall, one of the strengths of the history of this church is that the first family held true to each other, and that the father would say, as he did, My son, do not be disobedient to this heavenly vision. So much for background. Notice from the four accounts that each describes the struggle he had with the adversary. At each crucial turning point in the Restoration, Beelzebub, the enemy of righteousness, the prince of darkness, has reared his ugly head. The first vision is no exception. Someone has observed wisely that the adversary has not in contrast to the rest of us, lost his memory. He has not been placed in a physical body and had the veil drawn. The adversary, therefore, knew Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith said later in his life, every man, and that would include himself, who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of this earth was ordained to that calling in the grand council before the world was. It is no surprise that the adversary would wish to thwart the earnest supplication of this boy. And it is important, I believe, to observe that that was not the first time someone had prayed for the Lord to answer the hard question, whither is truth? And that, in effect, the answer that came to this boy, this mere boy, was an answer, I believe, to millions of prayers down through the centuries and on both sides of the veil. How strong was that influence? Well, you remember in the Pro of Great Price he says that it was no imaginary thing, that it was as if he would be destroyed. 
and in an earlier account he adds the detail that for a time he could not speak. His tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth. He exerted faith and was released. Through his life, the prophet had important things to say about the power of the evil one. But he never said that the evil one is as powerful as the living God. He knew both. And like Moses anciently, he was not confused when once he had seen both and their influence. He, in fact, constantly taught the saints that, quote, the devil has no power over us only as we permit him. That's speaking of the kind of power that we call possession. And he also said elsewhere, all men have power to resist the devil. All, in short, is voluntary. But whether we are righteous or not, we do not escape the buffetings. And they can be from the outside, as in his case, or if we yield, they can become interior and we ourselves become the very puppets of him. A healthy respect, may I put it so, for darkness arose from the Joseph Smith early visions, as did a glorious respect for the power that overcomes darkness, light. That leads to the next point that he describes the descending light dictating in each of these four cases and struggles for the proper word. He first uses the word fire. And that's crossed out, and he uses the word spirit or light. And the word he finally settled on and used most often was glory, where the word refers to the emanating and radiating spirit and power of God. That word fire is important to notice. Orson Pratt, in his book Remarkable Visions, which was published in 1840, two years before the Wentworth letter, and circulated widely in the missions in England and Europe. Orson Pratt says repeatedly that the young prophet expected to see the trees of the grove consumed and was surprised when they were not. In other words, he thought what he was seeing descending was fire, the kind that burns and consumes. Often I've wondered if that detail was something Orson had learned from conversation with the prophet or if it was just an inference from the statement he makes that the brightness and glory defy all description. Interestingly, the prophet answers that in the 1832 account. He says that he was both filled with that light but also surrounded by it. And he even says, in effect, that it filled the grove. But then he adds, but nothing consumed, indicating that he expected it might well have been. It is significant, I take it, that when the Lord speaks, not coming in his glory, and who shall abide the day 
that the very same reality, namely his glory, should be a blessing, a creative, enhancing, sanctifying thing, and for the wicked, anything but. Corruption cannot endure the presence of God. The same fire that will confirm the worthiness of the faithful will condemn the wickedness of the rest. And they, in effect, will lose by purging, and in some cases by death, the very elements of their systems that have been corrupted. Well, the prophet was not hurt. He was hallowed. And now, having seen the light, he sees two personages, as if in a pillar descending. He saw, eventually, two personages, and one spoke and said, This is my beloved son. Interestingly, in the Wentworth letter, the prophet says, speaking of the two, who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. Notice, not just they resembled, they exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. My own guess as to his meaning is that we have here what on earth is familiar. We talk of a family resemblance, like father, like son. The master looked like his father. Mosiah Hancock records a discourse in which Joseph Smith said that only the Holy Ghost, only the gift of the Holy Ghost and its special province of revelation can really enable you to know the Father from the Son so much are they alike. So that the biblical statement to Philip, who asked you remember, show us the Father, is literally true. The answer the Master gave was, Philip, have I been so long with you? Do you know me not? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. Not because they are identical, but because they are in appearance as well as in nature exactly similar. Which may give further insight to the phrase of Alma in the famous set of questions about our spiritual progress. Is the image of God engraven in your countenance? May give greater meaning to the favorite story of President McKay about the great stone face that in the very loving of a countenance one eventually takes on the character of what he loves. May, in fact, give further confirmation to the prophet's later vision of the Twelve, a group of disparate men from a variety of backgrounds who in vision he saw through their flounderings and struggles until, this was at Kirtland, he saw them glorified, saw them welcomed in the life to come, 
by Father Adam, greeted and embraced by the Master, and then ushered to the throne of God. And the interesting detail, he says, I saw that they all had full heads of hair. Interesting footnote. And that they all looked alike. I don't know that that should be pushed to the point of saying they, the Twelve, had absolutely similar features. But in glory and bloom and beauty, and the prophet uses the word beauty to describe the glory of a resurrected man, not just woman, they were similar. Young Joseph Smith learned in the sacred grove that to see the Father is to see the Son, and vice versa. There is a deeper point having to do with their relationship. For he is teaching in the 1840s, and I think it is but the extension of what he learned that morning, that the other statement of the Master, namely, I do nothing but what I have seen the Father do, has infinite implications. How could he have seen it as a witness? President Joseph Fielding Smith replied, not as a witness, he saw it in vision. Christ was blessed before he entered mortality to see in vision what the Father had done before him. In a prior eon, if you will, and again, the relationship is exact. If Christ himself was uniquely begotten and was first born in the Spirit, and if he was the Christ, not only of this earth, but as the prophet taught later, of the galaxy, so before him was the Father himself a Redeemer, having worked out the salvation of a family of which he was a brother not a father. Now this is deep water. It is drawn as a conclusion by Joseph Smith in his King Follett Discourse. And whatever else it may mean, and I take it to be mind-boggling, it at least means this, that the Father by experience knows exactly what his Son has been through. And the Son by experience knows exactly what the Father has been through. And when he therefore says, I and my Father are one, that is not a metaphysical identity. It is oneness of spirit, harmonic throbbings of love and insight that can only come in the patterns of eternal redemption. That, too, in the mind of a 14-year-old, blossomed and grew as an insight. Next, I turn to the emerging point that I've hinted at, that though we do not know the length of time the Prophet Joseph was there, 
and the instructions occurred. It probably was longer than just the outline we have. We know, for example, that other things were taught him, which he says, I will not notice at this time. So far as I know, he never did commit them to paper. Moreover, some of the enemies of the church have pointed out that the prophet spoke of the visits of angels in connection with his first vision. And some have theorized that he began claiming he saw an angel and then ended embellishing it by claiming he saw the Father and the Son. The truth is that having described all that you're familiar with about the Father and the Son, he says as the closing sentence of an early account, I saw many angels in this vision. It is an enforced either-or to say that he either saw the Father and the Son or saw angels. What he saw was both. And it's a fascinating but unanswerable question. Who would have been permitted to be with him in that theophany? What angels were present? We have his teaching that angels are either resurrected personages who have been upon this earth, or they are the spirits of the just who will yet be resurrected, who have been upon this earth, or, as in the rare cases of the Old Testament, they may be not yet embodied persons who come in anticipation. But, said he, there are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. Well, that narrows it down to this earth, but don't know that we can narrow it down more than that. The footnote is that he was wearied through these instructions, that the encounter, however long, demanded something from him. You remember he says he came to himself. I think it inappropriate to say it was a trance or a mystic state. I think that the clearest parallel is from the ancient records of Moses and Abraham and Enoch. He was filled with a spirit which enabled him to endure the presence of God. Is that spirit enervating or energizing? My considered answer is yes. It is both. It demands from us concentration and surrender comparable to nothing else possible in this life. But it also confers, in a way, again, transcendent of our finite powers, great capacities, mental, spiritual, and physical. You've all heard the story of how emerging from the vision called the Three Degrees of Glory with his companion in the vision, Sidney Rigdon. It was observed by Philo Dibble and others that the prophet looked strong and that Rigdon looked like he'd been through the war, to which the prophet, with a certain humility, as also condescension, said, Sidney is not as used to it as I am. One grows in the capacity but he was feeble 
and it was difficult for him to go home. You remember, too, that in the encounter with Moroni, repetitive encounter, he was left weak and the father sent him home. Couldn't even quite climb the fence, which for a strong and vigorous boy is interesting. Now I turn to some of the theological extensions of this insight as the prophet later taught. It is the first principle, he said, of revealed religion. To know for a certainty the character of God. I pause to interrupt that that's more than saying it is the first principle to know that God exists. It doesn't use the word existence at all. You can't find one argument in Joseph Smith for the existence of God. Why not? Well, I'll give you the most unkind answer. Because one does not begin to argue about a thing's existence until serious doubts have arisen. The arguments for God are a kind of whistling in the dark. In the absence of the experience of God, men have invented arguments to justify the experience of the absence of God. They have built a rational Tower of Babel and comforted themselves, well, we haven't heard. But he must still be there. But Joseph wasn't speculating. He was reporting his first-hand experience. Prophets always have. What I'm saying is not kind to the philosophers who have spent the greatest ingenuity of the Western world inventing what turn out in the end to be specious and invalid arguments for the existence of God. No, it is the first principle of revealed religion to know the character, the personality, the attributes of God. And that a man as Moses may converse with him as one man converses with another. That is the testimony from beginning to end of Joseph Smith. And he's talking about all of us now. A man, a woman. It is the first principle for any of us. That is where you begin. And then lest we should say, as occasionally we do, ah, but his remarkable life and experience is utterly beyond my own. He said, and this is 1842, there is nothing that has been made known to Joseph, calling himself by name, or to the twelve, but what will be made known to all saints of the last days. I repeat, but what will be made known to all saints of the last days as soon as they are prepared to receive. For the day must come when no man need say, Know ye the Lord, for all shall know him. Different, I observe, than knowing about 
him, all shall know him who remain from the least to the greatest. There's a marvelous discourse delivered a year later in which the prophet simply expounds the 14th chapter of John, that masterful sermon of the masters in which he says, in effect, in one sentence, be patient. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. I will make my abode with you. And even the Father, over and over in this sermon, the prophet says, this sermon has been readdressed, if you will, to us. It is not enough for you to say, our brother Joseph is in charge and he knows. You must know. He says it ten different ways and in the final verse says, Weary the Lord until he blesses you. Unquote. Occasionally I hear people say, well, I, you know, I don't want to overdo it and I don't want to don't want to ask for things I shouldn't ask. Of course, that represents a genuine discerning wisdom that we should not ask for what we should not ask. But when the Lord has commanded us to ask, and he has, then it is appropriate. Just as the parable of the importunate widow, remember, which Jesus explained before he taught. That's rare. He usually gave the explanation later. This one he said, that men might pray and not faint. And then he speaks of the widow who comes over and over to the judge, the unjust judge, pleads her case, always get this woman out of here. But finally she comes back so much and so often that in order just to be permanently rid of her, the judge says, all right, give her what she wants and get her out of here. Now, I have paraphrased the parable slightly. <laughs> but what is the point? Why would he teach a parable like that? He explained the point. Pray and don't faint. Or in the words of Joseph Smith, weary the Lord until he blesses you. There are places in modern scripture where the Lord commands us not to pray. Three places where he says, trouble me no more. But you look for the context and you'll find that in all three cases, he had already given the answer. And he's only saying, please take no for an answer. Or in some cases, yes. So it is. We have the privilege to recapitulate the experience of the prophet. Now that leads to my final point. So often, so often, we are haunted not only with the question of whether we have gone far enough in our own religious experience, but whether we can trust some things we have heretofore rested our faith upon. Acids eat away at us, some of them the taunting of other voices, but sometimes nothing more profound than our own sins, weaknesses, 
and betrayals of the best in ourselves. Doubt follows. You remember on that subject, there was a strange statement of the masters to Thomas. Thomas is the one classically categorized as a doubter because he in fact said what the others earlier had said. He said only, I will believe when and only when I see. The others, according to Luke, rubbed their eyes in disbelief when they did see. It's a beautiful phrase. Luke says, they believed not for joy. Meaning what? It was too good to be true. Within days they had seen their Lord crucified. Now he's there. They, they rubbed their eyes. So they too had some impending doubt. So did Thomas. The strange statement is that Jesus should say, Thomas, blessed are you because you have seen and believed. Blessed are they who, though they have not seen, yet have believed. I call that strange because on the surface it seems to put a premium on secondhand or distant awareness. Almost as if we're better off if we have unsupportable faith than if we have genuine faith resting on the knowledge of sight. I think that's a mistake. I think what is involved in that statement is the recognition by the Lord and by his prophets that the most penetrating of assurance, the one power even beyond sight that can burn doubt out of us and make it, as it were, impossible for us to disbelieve is the Holy Ghost. As Joseph Smith left the grove and then went through the subsequent days, he leaves on record this sentence. The Spirit of the Lord was with me, and I could rejoice with great joy. And the Lord was with me. And then, but I could get no one to believe the vision. It's one of the few and rare insights he gives you into what went on inside as distinct from out in that experience. Joy, love, and no doubt. Others, of course, doubted. He did not. Somewhere the prophet says that the one thing the adversary cannot duplicate. Oh, he is shrewd with the stratagems to come up with the satanic substitute. But the one thing he cannot is the witness and power of the Holy Ghost. When that is upon us, there is assurance, and again I repeat, even greater than sight, 
Now, I do not deny that it's possible to have both, and precisely that Joseph Smith did. He both saw, not as the later revelation says, with the natural or the carnal mind, but with the spiritual. He saw and saw with his own eyes, but he also was enveloped in that radiating power which has been commissioned to bear witness of what? Of the Father and the Son. One can, therefore, without having open or remarkable visions, have nevertheless the same glorious and glorifying certainty of the reality of the Father and the Son, and that by their Spirit, the power of the Holy Ghost. Closing then, may I bring all of this to a word of testimony. How often I am confronted in the world with those who want to believe in God without believing in God. By those who are willing to affirm that there is something, and that's about the strongest word they want to use, something out there that accounts for things. A principle, a harmonic force, or an ultimate cosmic mystery. How rarely is the testimony that the Father is in the likeness of the Christ and vice versa. Welcome. One reason, and I can testify of this, is that such personal beings can get involved in your life, changing it, giving specific commandments and counsels, rebuking, approving or disapproving, and a God who is utterly distant stays out of your hair. Whether the Prophet Joseph fully anticipated consequences of his prayer, and I'm sure he did not. On one occasion, in fact, he said, if I had not gotten into this work and been called of God, I would back out. But he added, and this is his integrity, but I cannot back out. I have no doubt of the truth. Well, some men who have no doubt of the truth have nevertheless backed out. He did not. Whether he anticipated fully the consequences, he nevertheless knew and welcomed into his life the Father and the Son. Even as he was told in 1829, if he should be slain, true unto life and unto death. That seals, to use the word that he re-revealed in our generation, the power of his first and subsequent visitations. And anyone who has enough of the Spirit of God to know that God lives and that Jesus is his Christ, by that same Spirit will recognize that one of the prophets called by the Father and the Son was the prophet Joseph Smith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.